Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. We're going to get back today to talking about the state of the parties in Britain. We haven't done that for a while, but we're not going to talk about who's up in the polls, who's up in Parliament. We're going to talk about the membership. Labour has all the members now and the Tories seem to have none. Does that matter? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. It's a real pleasure to welcome back Helen Thompson and Chris Bickerton. We haven't chatted for a while. There's been quite a lot going on, I think. We're going to get to some of it. We're not going to get to all of it. But the trigger for this conversation is actually, it's not the Labour Party, it's the Conservative Party. I read a story put out by Momentum, which said, I mean, Momentum, the group within Labour, said that they thought that they would have more members than the Tories, just Momentum, not the Labour Party, by 2022, because Momentum, I think, are getting close to 50,000. They're over 40,000. No one knows how many members the Conservative Party has because it keeps that information secret, though it will have to reveal it when there's a leadership election. So if Theresa May had fought Andrea Leadsom and only 17 people had voted, we would have discovered just how few they have. But the current estimate is that it's about 70,000. And Labour is at 550,000. So you've got these two parties neck and neck in the polls. Actually, the Tories are a bit ahead at the moment. Pretty even in Parliament. The Tories are a bit ahead at the moment. Theresa May is doing better than she was, but the two leaders are often now compared to each other. But in one crucial respect, one party is just miles ahead. And so I thought it would be interesting to try and tease out whether this matters or not. And just to give it a bit of historical context... The Tory party, the Conservatives, used to be the biggest membership party in the world, I believe, apart from the Chinese Communist Party, I mean, Democratic Party, and it had three million members in the 1950s in a country whose population was only about 45 million, I think, of whom maybe half adults. I I was trying to work it out. I think it means that more than one in 10 British citizens was a member of the Conservative Party in the 1950s. And then even at the turn of the century... The leadership election between Ian Duncan Smith and Ken Clark, it was, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. 250,000 people voted because members could vote. And again, they don't reveal turnout because that would have to reveal how many members they have. But let's assume turnout was high. But even if it was high, that's 300,000 plus. Now we're at 70,000. And it's dwindling. I mean, soon it'll be none. So <laughs> it's kind of hard to fathom how it works. It's a membership party with no members. Do you think, Helen, do you think it matters? It clearly doesn't seem to have mattered so far. If you go back to the 2015 general election where the Conservatives won their majority, then what we can see is that they did very well in getting out the vote in the places that mattered, and in particular getting out the vote in those seats where they were trying to dislodge the Liberal Democrats in the southwest. And these weren't seats where they had lots of members. No, I mean, that's the, it's not like this was where the members were getting the vote. And at the time we were told that the organisational prowess behind that success came from micro-targeting, including using Facebook and 
Obama's operator, Jim Messina, who came over and helped the Conservatives. So whilst it's true that Labour obviously wasn't the same kind of membership-based party in 2015 that it has since become, it still had a membership advantage over the Conservatives and it looked like it counted for absolutely nothing. And indeed, I think I'm right in saying that Ed Miliband was very keen on the millions of conversations that Labour were having on the on the doorsteps and as I say the narrative then became well that doesn't matter any longer because the Conservatives have got Messina and Facebook and micro-targeting and all the things that now are much more complicated than perhaps that they seemed then. But on then the, 2017 But happens. then 2017 happens and it looks like a somewhat different story and I think it's well there's so many things that go wrong for the Conservatives in 2017 to say it's because they didn't have enough members is too simplistic but it's I think it's hard to think that it had nothing to do with what went wrong. So I'm just reading Tim Shipman's book about the 2017 election we're going to be speaking to him soon about that and it has this great line I actually can't remember who it is who says it I think it's an anonymous high up source inside the Tory campaign and it's before the results so it's still when the Tories think they're they're cruising to a comfortable victory but the polls are getting closer and there's just this beginning of a whiff of kind of panic. And this guy says, it's really hard to gauge this election because the Labour Party has Facebook and members and young people and all we've got is money. We should still win because kind of <laughs> doesn't money beat Facebook and members and young people. But there's just that hint of a thought that maybe it doesn't. I think the other thing, though, which we should remember is the Conservatives still got the highest proportion of the vote that they've got in a general election since 1983 off this campaign of money. <laughs> of money and of this campaign where there were no members and yeah, no members a very uncharismatic leader badly run campaign blah 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 plus money it is striking that i think the only comparison that i could see by looking around earlier in in the week where you've got such a fall and such an awful position really in terms of members of a major european party certainly a major west european party is the french socialists which i think is down chris will know been around 40,000 Oh, possibly yeah, even less but they're not a shining but, example but exactly. of how you can do I, I, I well that's, without but that's, that's my point yeah. though is if that's the only comparison that there is between the Conservatives precipitous fallen members clearly that the Conservatives are not the French socialists so they look like an outlier I mean even a party that's really in trouble like the German Social Democrats still have more than 400,000 members I know Germany's got a larger population so there is something strange about the position the Conservatives got into here so it is important but what it tells us is that in some way British politics is oscillating between two different kinds of political party. So membership matters if you have what people generally describe as the mass party, the traditional mass party. Which um, the Conservative Party was. I mean, that's the thing we have to remember about it. It both, was a mass organisation party, much more than Labour was. But, I mean, both parties back in the 1950s clearly were on this traditional mass party model. And that's where votes come from members and the connections that members have to wider society. But the membership is central to the way that sort of party works. But this country hasn't had that sort of mass party model for quite a long time. It's had what people call this the catch-all party, which is where parties don't really have a mass membership. They just have communications, good slogans. They carve up the electorate, depending on the election, depending on the issue. And there's not a sense of always voting for the same party, but being much more open as a voter to what the parties are saying. Now, if that's the model, then what role is there actually for, for members? It's not really about membership anymore. Now, the Labour Party is conceivably, possibly trying to reconstruct a slightly more traditional mass party model. Maybe it's starting to get there. The Conservatives clearly are nothing like that. But whether it matters or not, I suppose, is what members actually are expected to do. I mean, they do go on the doorstep, they do canvass, they are important for those you know, reasons. 
But in an age where you have social media, do you need that sort of doorstep canvassing that members traditionally do? I mean, there is real anxiety. We've got local elections coming up and there is a thought that in local elections it does make a bigger difference because there isn't going to frankly be a lot of micro-targeting or indeed money's not going to make a huge difference in low turnout elections. Having half a million people, I'm, I'm sure not all of the half a million are going to be willing to doorstep. But if enough of them are, these elections could actually for two parties that are neck and neck in the polls could be very bad for the Conservatives. Well, also, there's a problem if it carries on like this for the Conservatives is there simply won't be enough people to be candidates in local elections because at a certain point, if you don't have members, you don't have candidates. And it should be said, the Liberal Democrats, who are nowhere in British politics, have now got a lot more members than the Conservatives do. They're well over 100,000. And they do still do pretty well. If you look at all of the local election by-elections there have been, if you just looked at that as your data point for British politics since the last British general election, you would think the Lib Dems were this kind of surging revivalist party, which they're not. (laughs) But in local politics, they are on the comeback trail. I think the other thing, though, about Labour in this is that clearly something quite fundamental has changed in the sense that you could say that the membership not took over the Labour Party but the membership if we add in membership plus the three pounders created a new party leader created a a rebellion of the dispossessed if you like within the Labour Party against the new Labour project and Corbyn was the beneficiary of that and then Corbyn has tried to mobilise the membership against his opponents in the parliamentary party and has done that so far at least after the election, pretty successfully. But clearly that doesn't mean that, or doesn't necessarily mean any way that Corbyn's aim is actually to create a mass membership party. And I think you can see over Brexit that he's not really very interested in engaging with the members about what party's position should be, despite the fact that a lot of his rhetoric is all about, well, it's for the members to decide what Labour Party policy should now be, only when it suits him. So can we come back to Labour in a second? There's one other thing I want to ask about the Tories, which is, so there's, does having no members affect your ability to get the vote out? How does it make you look as a party? Because it basically makes you look hollow. But there is this weird irony, which is the mass membership model that Chris was talking about, went along with the members having very, very little power or authority within the party to set direction, including to choose the leader. The leadership was a parliamentary decision. And then at the turn of the century in the Conservative Party and evolving in the Labour Party through this complex model to a more direct membership model, the members of whom there are now far, far fewer get empowered in the name of democracy. This slightly odd thing, which is when the Tories had 3 million members, the members didn't get to pick the leader. When the Tories had 300,000 members, the members did get to pick the leader. And now the Tories have 70,000 members. If Theresa May goes before the next election, those 70,000 people will choose the Prime Minister in the name of democracy, because that's somehow thought to be more democratic than having 300-plus members of parliament choose the leader. And it only happened with Theresa May because her rival dropped out. If Andrea Leadsom had stood, we would have discovered 80, 90, 100,000, whatever it was back then, would have chosen the leader. And there is something completely baffling about this because it looks really undemocratic to me. The thought that those 70,000 people, whoever they are, and there must be a possibility that they would pick... Jacob Rees-Mogg if he got onto the final ballot of two. It's at least possible. And they do have, there were more of them, but they do have history here. The Tory membership picked Ian Duncan Smith, which was the single worst decision for the leader of a political party made in my lifetime, I think. I can't think of a worse one. So they're capable of it. And there were a lot more of them back then. 
So that just doesn't make sense anymore. I mean, why are people not more... I know there's a sort of mild rumbling of exasperation about the thought that these people will pick the next Prime Minister, but it's an outrage. But I think one reflects the other. I think as as the party's capacity to represent society and engage with society shrinks, it tries to encourage an internal form of direct democracy to empower members to compensate for, for that. And direct democracy is only democratic so far as those having a direct voice are in some way representative. If it's a group of 10 people, then they may be directly able to elect a leader, but it doesn't sound like a very democratic process. Because you could say that the current makeup of the Tory party in Parliament is much more representative. If you've got those 300 and, what is it, 317 MPs to pick the next Prime Minister, you've actually got a much more diverse group of people than the 70,000. We don't know who these 70,000 are, but we know the majority of them are over 65. We know they're almost all white. We know they're concentrated in certain parts of the country. I imagine almost none of them live in Scotland anymore, but there are Scottish Tory MPs now. It would be much more democratic, wouldn't it, if the parliamentary party picked the next prime minister? But I think there is a caveat to whether the, the Conservatives do it, and that is is that the parliamentary party does get it down to two. It does. And the reason why... It does Ian, that is they're terrified of the members. Ian Duncan-Smith ended up as the Conservative leader was because there was enough, what's the way of putting it, unhappiness about the prospect of Michael Portillo being leader within the parliamentary party for him to end up on the ballot. Now, you could say, well, Boris Johnson then plays the same role that Michael Portillo played in 2001 and you end up well, with... to stop Boris, you get... To stop Boris. You don't get Reece Mogg. No, I don't... You get Gove. Clearly the parallel doesn't work exactly, but all I'm saying is that the parliamentary party can produce a, a perverse outcome from its own point of view because clearly when it really came to it, the parliamentary party couldn't work with Ian Duncan-Smith and that became clear very quickly and one might think that they might learn the lesson from that and say, OK, we might have to have somebody who we're not so keen on in the second round in order to stop some really awful outcome from their point of view. But I think the other thing that is important is is that I don't think the shift has just been a one way in relation to democracy in terms of these mass member parties and to where we are now and picking leaders because the one thing that these mass member parties did do prior really to Blair and Cameron and the Conservative Party was have a much greater say about picking candidates. And one of the reasons I think why they mass member parties declined in, in the British case anyway, with, at least with Labour and Conservatives, is precisely a reaction against that, is, is that the more the parties try to determine at the top who was going to be candidates in parliamentary constituencies, the fewer members they ended up having. Yeah, and it's true that the mass membership Tory party, the, the really powerful people were the constituency yeah. chairman, and they would always have been called chairmen back then, mm-hmm. even when they were women. They had real they did. authority yeah. in the party, and, and the members of parliament were frightened of them. And there was someone, I, I'm pretty sure this is going back really distant in my memory, is, is that I think there was someone who was kind of like the chair of the Conservative chairman, so to speak, who was somebody who seemed to be, at least in my teenage years, someone who's, who really did seem politically to matter as to who that like person was. Like being head of the TUC or something <laughs> at Easter when we were children. These were really important jobs. And clearly, who chairs these constituency associations is just coming the Conservative matter to, to matter really not at all. But for the Conservatives, I mean, it is a terrible prospect, which is that the, the upper echelons of the party are terrified of the remaining members that they have. And that's not something you find on this mass party 1950s model, where 
Yes, there were relations of, you know, there was tension where there were disagreements about selecting candidates, that's true. The model was, even if you go back to the early 20th century, these mass parties are pretty hierarchical, run by, you know, the sort of top cadres. But you get a sense of the filtering up from society and the role that the local level plays is in channeling people up towards important positions, either as MPs or in other places in the party. So you don't have a party at war with its membership. Now, the Conservatives, insofar as the party are trying to protect themselves from the possible consequences of giving this small group of its members a say on a future leader. That would be the most problematic thing with the Conservative Party. What's interesting is whether the Labour Party has overcome this tension between the membership and the party machine or the party leadership, whether it's more in phase or in tune with its members. I'm not sure that it is. But the problem of political parties, I think, today is that they are generally unable to relate to society and so they try and find ways to do so and giving a direct you know role to the membership in electing a leader is one way you have some of the most extreme versions in other places not in the UK but of open primaries where you give anybody doesn't have to be anybody who has any relationship to the party whatsoever a vote in electing a, a leader of a party that's an attempt to engage society I don't get solves the solves the problem and it's not going to happen here but it does seem like the obvious solution to the problem of what would happen if Theresa May stood down before the next general election. If you're down to 70,000 people who are age 65 and over picking the next prime minister versus an open primary on something like the American model, surely the open primary makes a lot more sense. And actually it would be an opportunity to reinvigorate British democracy in some ways to give the people a direct input into the choice of prime minister. It's not going to happen, but surely it ought to happen. I mean, it depends. I mean, if everybody gets involved, then yes. But well, they would. First chance ever to choose the Prime Minister in a sure. direct... What about the possibility for people to group together and to try and you know, do really something that would be a dis- <laughs> well, It would be interesting, but all it these, might not All be. these Corbynites voting for Jacob Rees-Mogg. Well, you see, that's... But the other thing is, is though, that can happen, but it can just as well happen with the predicament that Conservatives are now in if a group of people, and you might say liberal anti-Brexiteers, might be this kind of group... The Conservative Party, as it's structured at the moment, is highly open to entryism, to use a left-wing term for it. Yeah, I don't know. Having, what, what are the rules about becoming a member? Do you know? There's a delay. I can't remember how long you have to be in the party in order to vote in a leadership election, but a group of people who got their act together now, imagining that Theresa May... I mean, I think there's a chance now that she'll fight the next election, but let's just say, leave that aside for a moment... If you say you've got two years into the the Conservative Party, I'm pretty sure you're going to get a vote. I mean, I stand to be corrected on that, but I don't, I don't think the waiting time's that long. Especially since they don't publish any details about their membership, which that could come back to bite them too. They suddenly discover that they actually have 170,000 members, 100,000 of whom live in Islington. But it still poses the question of the representational quality of the membership. Um, in an age where membership numbers dwindle and you start to have and attempts to reinvigorate relations with society through things like open primaries, what you basically do is you mobilise opponents or you mobilise groups of highly motivated individuals for specific you know, reasons around Brexit, for instance. But what you don't do is you don't go back to the age of the mass party model. You're inventing something different, something else. I mean, I think the Labour Party hasn't reinvigorated that model. I mean, if we go to the actual the membership figures for the Labour Party and look particularly at the numbers of those who are involved in the momentum movement, they're a very small number. And they may overtake the Conservative Party, you know, in the next few years, but that only tells us how few members the Conservative Party has. These are still relatively small groups of highly motivated individuals that exist in a mass of a generally 
individualized and depoliticized society. Because you could say that one argument that could be made about Labour is that it has momentum, which is the most energized part of the moment, though there are other very energized parts too coming out of the trade union movement. Unite is a really important force in Labour. Momentum is a really important force in Labour. And these are, Unite is a mass membership organization. But the party membership as a whole, which is about 550,000, and we keep hearing there's quite a lot of churn in the sense that people are leaving and joining in large numbers. So it's quite dynamic, but it's also a possibility that it's moving quite fast in a particular direction. That's a lot of people for a political party these days. But like you say, it's as a proportion of the population, it's very small. Is there a risk that actually, weirdly, it's less representative even than the Conservative Party? Because the fact that the Conservative Party has no members liberates the MPs to a certain extent to ignore them, apart from in a leadership election. The Labour Party can't ignore its membership, but its membership is half a million plus people from certain parts of the country on the whole, with certain kinds of political views that aren't typical of the wider cross-section of British public opinion, on some issues anyway. And is there a risk that Labour is actually the one that's most likely to be trapped with an unrepresentative party membership? I don't know whether it's in a worse situation, the Conservative Party. It's in a different situation. There are different problems, I suppose. But it is a particular kind of problem. I mean, in that sense, the Labour Party hasn't escaped a very general trend, which is that centre-left parties used to be representative of people with, you know, low levels of education who are generally working class, sort of for blue collar. Over the last, I mean, a long period of time, over the last you know, 30 to 40 years, they have simply become something else. They've become parties of another section of society. They're still called centre-left. They still have names like Socialist Party or Labour Party, but they don't represent who they used to represent. And so the Labour Party members today are, I think, generally urban, middle-class, educated voters from particular parts of the country with vast swathes of the British population, reasonably disaffected and disenchanted with what they used to think of as a Labour Party for them. Now, that means the Labour Party is in the grip of a particular set of people and it will become a party of them. Now the Conservatives have a different kind of problem which is they don't know who they're the party of if they don't have a membership which is I suppose liberating but also constraining at the same time. I mean they are the party of old people. Which I suppose must be in some way the reason that they're in and we've not talked about why the Conservative Party has shed so many members. I suspect it's partly that they've simply not been able to renew generationally their members and they've not engaged with any young people so there's nobody who's young joining the Conservative Party which creates a big gap for them. But I mean there are some trends, electoral volatility for instance is a really important trend and I think the Labour Party membership is not suggesting that's going away. You know people join then they leave, there's a sort of that churn that you're talking about reflects this general volatility which we didn't see back in the 1950s. I'm not sure whether Labour's issue with the membership is really any different than its issue with its electoral coalition. Isn't the risk for Labour at the moment that the electoral coalition that it mobilised in 2017 is perhaps as big as it can get under Corbyn's leadership anyway. So the same kinds of people as Chris described, relatively young graduates living in urban places that fill the membership also are highly represented in Labour's electoral coalition. The question I think that it faces is has it got any ability under Corbyn's leadership to take any votes away from people who voted Conservative in 2017? at least, because what it did effectively in the last election was to mop up all the left-wing votes going, whether they were former left Liberal Democrats or whether they were Greens or whether they were people who had voted Labour who had stopped voting. And quite a few UKIP left yeah, voters. Yeah, UKIP left voters as well. 
So in order, I think, for Labour to make progress in terms of winning seats, it does have to be able to take former Conservative votes. And I think this is where its problems start, but I don't think, as I say, they're necessarily generated by the membership itself so much as Corbyn's leadership, because clearly the Conservatives have got a generational problem, and I think it is a structural generational problem. It isn't just about not being able to get young people into the party, it's about not being able to get young people, enough young people to vote for them. And I think the core of that for the Conservatives is housing, because as we talked about before, the Conservatives historically have relied on home ownership, converting younger people to being Conservative in some sense. So at the moment, the Conservatives are holding the electoral coalition together as much by fear of Corbynism as they are by anything else. And so long as Corbyn's in place, then their weaknesses don't come to play. So the question for them then becomes, have they got the ability to peel off more people interfering Corbyn who did vote Labour. And I think that they've probably got more possibility of that than Labour have of going the other direction. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. I don't want to rehash the anti-Semitism dramas that have been going on since we last talked about British politics. I just want to raise one issue in relation to it because there has been some interesting polling. And actually polling of party members is probably in some ways more accurate because it's a smaller sample and it captures something that you don't get from this broad brush who you're going to vote for in a general election polling. There was some detailed polling of the Labour Party membership about the anti-Semitism question, asking people whether they thought it was a problem for the party or not. Then there was also, this was about 10 days ago, and then a few days ago there was polling of the public as a whole on the anti-Semitism question. And it was striking that the, the first poll was presented in the mainstream media as more evidence that the Labour Party has become a kind of Corbyn cult in that it was held up as evidence that I think it was 77% of people thought that anti-Semitism was an issue that was being used by Corbyn's opponents to damage him and so on. And only 19% of people thought it was a serious problem as described in the media for the Labour Party. And this was seen as an example of the way in which maybe the Labour Party, its membership has become unrepresentative. It's this kind of bubble phenomenon. Every attack on Corbyn is just interpreted as a way of dragging their man down. But when you looked at the figures, actually, on the question, do you think anti-Semitism is a problem for the Labour Party? 68% of Labour members said yes, and only 21% said no. And then the poll a week later that asked the British public, do you think anti-Semitism is a problem for the Labour Party? Only 51% of people said yes. So on that basic raw question, more Labour members think it's a problem than members of the public. And when you look in detail at the poll of Labour members, it doesn't suggest to me a cult, a Corbyn cult at all. It suggests a very big organisation now that is really seriously divided on quite a lot of issues, including this one. I mean, this one is just emblematic. And when you break the polling down, you see, for instance, the people who voted for Owen Smith, which is a third of the membership, still hold very, very different views. And they haven't quit than the people who voted for Jeremy Corbyn. And even on the anti-Semitism question, some people think it's a very serious problem. Some people think it's not a problem at all. And then the broad majority in the middle think it both is a problem and it has been weaponized by Corbyn's opponents. There must be a chance that the big difference between the Labour Party and the Tories in terms of membership is that Labour now have enough members to be split. (laughs) And that the Tories no longer being, I mean, the Tory party is clearly potentially split on 
questions like Brexit. If it doesn't have enough members to provide power bases and little factions within the party that members of parliament can use. Whereas Labour now really does potentially have that problem, that the membership is not a cult, it's big enough to be divided. And there are two ways to to think about that. So one is to think that's a problem, which is that because the Labour Party is divided on all these things, it's going to struggle to put out a clear message come election time. It's going to struggle to to agree on a coherent manifesto. It's not going to have the kind of um, the clarity in its message that might come out of the Conservative Party. That may be true. Although, of course, it didn't happen in 2017. I mean, that's the thing we have to remember that come election time, those divisions melted away. Well, and so on the other side, you could say that this is good for the Labour Party in the sense that society is divided on a lot of these questions. People disagree. Now, if a party has within its membership the kind of disagreements that actually exist within wider society, then the kind of conversation the party is going to be having is how to resolve that, how to get some common position, how to get agreement, how to solve some of these you know, conflicts. So it's doing the job that happens in wider society anyway. And so what will come out of of that conversation, that discussion, that negotiation within the party, within these different factions, will be a much more convincing and, I suppose, representative programme, because it won't have just been pulled out of somebody's back pocket. As the Tories did in 2017. Exactly. It'll actually have been the result of a genuine social process, which is what I think was always the great thing about the old mass party model, is mass parties were not you know, driven by the leadership with no debate. There were places of intense disagreement amongst members within the membership, and that created more realistic party programmes. I think the political problem, as opposed to the ethical problem for Labour about the anti-Semitism issue, is that it really has reignited factional warfare, actually, within the parliamentary party. Because previously, some extremely critical Labour MPs about Corbyn's leadership basically shut up. In fact, they did more than shut up. They kind of sort of said, well, maybe there's more to this political project than that we had thought. It's not the vote loser that we thought it was. And, and substantive matters that they've been critical about, including some of these kind of issues, for instance, you know, like Corbyn's previous comments about Hamas, um, for instance, they went silent about them. And that seems to have stopped in the last few weeks. It's come at a time when some of these MPs are already being extremely critical about Corbyn's handling of Russia. So the question then becomes, is there the potential in what has happened over the last few weeks to see real conflict between individual MPs and their constituency parties in relation to membership rebellions against them being renominated as the candidate next time? And I think part of the way in which, if you like, peace broke out in the Labour Party after the general election was the whole question of deselection seemed to move away. But I think we, I'm not saying we will, but we may be moving back to a period in which that becomes more contested. Because there are three possible kinds of divisions here. And there is a general rule. We know that the general rules no longer apply in politics, so you shouldn't rely on them. But the general rule is that the divided party loses to the united party in an election. The Tories are pretty good at being united except on Europe, where they're always divided. Labour in the past has varied. It's sometimes been united, sometimes been very divided. But that really means divisions in the parliamentary party. I mean, that's what people are focusing on. They, they are very suspicious of political parties where the MPs cannot agree what it is that they're standing for. Then there's the possible division between the parliamentary party and the membership, which is potentially damaging. And then there's the division within the membership. And I tend to actually, I think Chrissy persuaded me that on the whole, that's probably a net positive, that a big party 
which is divided enough to disagree on fundamental questions, has got a better chance of coming up with a programme that sounds like it's been thought about, <laughs> which in the problem with the Tories is... I mean, I really do think the Tory manifesto last time probably is a function of the fact they haven't got any members, because Nick Timothy who we hope to speak to on this podcast sometime soon, he just was able to pull it out of his pocket because he didn't have to answer to anyone. If you take those three within the parliamentary party, within the membership, between the membership and the parliamentary party, which is the one that you think has the most potential to kind of run within Labour? So I think within the parliamentary party, the divisions are... The most acute. Very important and difficult to reconcile outside of some exceptional pre-election circumstances. The divisions within the membership, I think, is probably unlikely to go away, but I think is broadly a good thing. The division between the membership and the parliamentary party, between the sort of party leaders and MPs, if you like, and the broader membership, I think that will vary and is often a sort of an issue-by-issue thing as well and will differ because the different parts of the membership will have different views on things and so that will relate differently to the parliamentary party. I mean, the other thing about division, so a party divided is a party that you know, will struggle to win, fine. But there are different kinds of division. So if you have, especially MPs who are broadly accepting of a certain set of values, principles, a kind of worldview, if you like, I think it's also good that they actually disagree amongst themselves on certain questions in order to then formulate a position. So foreign policy is a classic one that can be pretty divisive. And I think on Russia, to have some variance of opinion across a parliamentary party is not a necessarily a bad thing. You mustn't have, I think, fundamentally different worldviews, which is possibly what you are having on foreign policy within a Labour party. Yeah, exactly. That's the danger yeah, in that if right. Corbyn's worldview is shaped by foreign policy, then foreign policy becomes potentially a very dangerous division, which it, it, it probably wouldn't be in other settings or with other leaders whose worldview is primarily domestic. I mean, one of the reasons why I think that Labour was able to keep the schism within the parliamentary party under the wrap, so to speak, during the general election, because a lot of the parliamentary parties simply stayed off the airwaves. We didn't have a foreign policy election. We didn't see a stream of Labour politicians like, say, Yvette Cooper or... Liz Kendall. Liz Kendall being asked, would you be happy with Jeremy Corbyn being in charge of the country's foreign policy? And that's presumably more likely to happen next time round. I mean, it is the case. So another very interesting thing that came out of this poll of Labour members was a year ago, this supposedly Corbyn cult, when asked, do you think Jeremy Corbyn will be Prime Minister? Roughly a quarter of them said yes, and the rest said no. So they didn't believe he was going to be Prime Minister. Now, more than two thirds believe that he's going to be Prime Minister. Now, if the expectation is that this man is going to actually be Prime Minister, that does change the dynamic of how the Parliamentary Party will be interrogated. I mean, last time it wasn't interrogated because it wasn't an issue, right? But doesn't it mean there's more likely for the dissenters to fall into line, even more so? If there's a realistic prospect of somebody becoming Prime Minister, then you're less likely to, to go on the airwaves. I'm not sure about this. I'm because not sure because no. is, is I think that the dissenters in the parliamentary party actually, in some sense, or enough of them, kind of are repulsed by Corbyn's worldview. And I think that that is a, a problem the closer that he gets to power. I mean, I think this is where it's kind of quite hard, I think, to not to make sense of what's going on, but there's this sort of this tension in what's happened to the Labour Party because on the one hand I think it it makes perfect sense that the Labour Party has moved to the left and repudiated the new Labour project including all new Labour's centralising behaviour in relation to the party Um, but 
Corbyn, as we said before, is a is a foreign policy guy, and he's in some sense a very odd leader for this movement that repudiated the New Labour project. So, whilst I think that there are these MPs who who could reconcile themselves for pragmatic reasons to a more left Labour Party, they struggle more to reconcile themselves to a, such a Labour Party when you've got added in this really very different worldview on foreign policy that Corbyn has. And one of the oddities about being a foreign policy leader is that foreign policy traditionally on left and on right is not something that you invite a huge amount of democratic input into. There is a general understanding that it has a particular dynamic that requires relatively elite decision making and leadership. And the left share that as much as the right. And I think Corbyn shares that as much as someone on the right that though there might be a shared worldview between him and the members about broad questions like Israel and Palestine, like human rights, actual policy decisions in foreign policy are for him to make. He wouldn't put that to the membership, would he? Unless he wanted to use them to face down the parliamentary party. Well, he's clearly not interested in putting the Brexit question to the membership because the mem- this is an issue where he is at odds with them. He clearly is at odds with the membership, even the, the membership in terms of the, or at least some at least of the members whom he has mobilised into the party. So can I finish with um, the sort of unspoken question? I don't want to get too into this because it's sort of pointless. But there was a story in The Observer at the weekend about a 50 million war chest being made available for anyone who can come and form a new middle ground party, whether it's David Miliband or whoever it is. These stories bubble up every six months or so. And that was a classic example of where they have money but not only do they not have young people and Facebook and they don't have a name, they don't have any... Politicians. Politicians, they don't have any policies, they don't have any members. They just have the money. But there is just this constant nagging feeling for a lot of people that the way party politics has gone in Britain has left a large number of the electorate unrepresented in this ironic way where everyone's voting for one or two parties but most people can't stand either of the two parties. We know first past the post is a huge barrier to entry and yet Macron is always held up as an example that fortune favours the brave and if someone would just have the guts to do it you never know kind of British Macron is there any space in British politics for and let's leave aside the question of what the policies would be but in the Macron sense a new kind of party a party which isn't one of the traditional parties it's not mass membership in that old-fashioned sense it's more like a movement that people join to give it impetus in this age where people do things much more quickly that something could grow very fast if it got the right kind of momentum behind it is there any room for that all the traditional sort of textbook laws of British politics say no, therefore we should think this is a, a definite possibility. I think it's not, yes, I mean, it's not impossible. I think um, the Macron lesson is a very treacherous one. What brought Macron to where he is, we have to go back to that early period of the French presidential election where you had basically a kind of Tagentopoli moment, you know, this kind of Italian corruption crisis in the early 90s that brought Berlusconi to power. You had something like that in French politics, where you had a leading figure brought down by terrible corruption allegations that paved the way on the back of a very unpopular incumbent president for Macron. So he didn't create the space himself out of nothing. It was presented to him and he seized the opportunity, but the opportunity was nevertheless there. In in British politics, you'd have to have something analogous to that, some sort of vacuum, some sort of space that is waiting to be filled. I don't think we have that now. Because you've suddenly made me think, I mean, this may be putting it too extremely, but is it that British politics is not corrupt enough? 
to create the space for a new kind of party? Because I, I would say that one thing that Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn have in common is that they are pretty uncorrupt politicians. Um, I think that in their different ways, they represent a tradition of British politics, which is nothing like Italian or French politics, or even actually American politics, the power of that kind of money. I mean, Trump, and Helen has said this a lot, I mean, Trump used corruption as a big part of his mobilizing agenda. British politics is still, thankfully, or maybe not, if we want another party, not corrupt enough. Can I just say, we have seen, I mean, the impact of the parliamentary expenses scandal on British politics. It's not corrupt. No, but if you go back then, 2009, I think it was, we did see a lot of shift towards UKIP, there's no doubt, at, at different levels, not in terms of getting into Parliament because of the system we have, but at other levels of politics. That was related to parliamentary expenses. So that's the precedence. Yes, I think something that has a something that taints the whole political system and that creates a certain space for somebody who's different, that's what would, what would have to happen. In Macron's case, I mean, he'd been associated with politics before, but he was able to carve himself out as this somehow apolitical, unparty politics sort of person. The question is whether in British politics you'd have a figure like that who could emerge and the opportunity to, to do so. And is it at least possible, because Corbyn is not just uncorrupt, he is a strikingly pure figure in certain respects. So we've had the kind of beetroot moment, which sort of symbolises aspects of his leadership when he went to this Judas meeting and brought along a beetroot. And it's quaint and it's kind of comical, but it does capture something about him, which is maybe he's the one who is benefiting from part of this impulse for something new simply because he does represent he's not in any sense apolitical but he does represent something which doesn't feel tainted there's no doubt that corbyn has changed british politics he's changed what the labor party is he's changed what the space of the labor party's occupying so you know in that sense we have had a version of what has happened in the united states that trump in some sense hijacked i don't want to say that corbyn hijacked the labor party but trump i think did hijack the Republican Party, given they didn't really have any historical relationship with it. So you have a one of the two main parties that has been pushed in a really radically different direction than the one that it occupied, at least for Labour's case, for quite some time. And just to say, Corbyn, he didn't use the word corruption, but his ability to defeat the three new Labour candidates was by being able to suggest in the same way that Trump did, that these people were fundamentally tainted. I mean, they were actually irredeemable. Yeah, there's definitely something in that. I think, though, that we shouldn't get carried away with the fact that British politics, and actually we mean that the non-Scottish part of British politics, can only accommodate two parties, because actually, you know, for the period from 97, at least, through to the last general election, it accommodated at least three, and... I'm saying at least three, and UKIP as a fourth, when UKIP did better in 2015, then obviously the, the Liberal Democrats fell away. So there's clearly space for more than two political parties, even if we just look at the, the recent past. I'd say that the most obvious space that's been unoccupied at the moment is actually the space that UKIP were occupying, which is to be, if you leave the Brexit issue out of it, which is to be socially conservative and to be more left on economic issues than the Conservative Party is. In terms of a party like the one that's got £50 million and nothing, nothing else, else. <laughs> if you're reading that Observer article, we got the sense that what it was supposed to be was a projection for a party that would be anti-Brexit, socially liberal and fiscally conservative. Well, that's exactly what the Liberal Democrats are. 
So then you've got to have a reason as to why this new party is going to do better than the Liberal Democrats. So now, now you can say that once you get to two parties dominating, that the smaller parties have a great deal of difficulty. Well, that then applies exactly to this new nameless party. The only thing you could say is, is, is there a constituency of people who are voting for one of the Conservative Party or the Labour Party at the moment who simply are unwilling under any circumstances to contemplate voting Liberal Democrat? And I think there probably is, and particularly on the Labour side of it, because of what they see as irredeemable damage to the Liberal Democrat brand by the coalition agreement with the Conservatives. But is that enough to form a new political party? I very much doubt it, not least because a lot of those voters, when it really comes to it, the thing that matters most to them is anti-Toryism, and you're going to further anti-Toryism more by voting Labour than you are for this nameless party. Next week, we're going to be talking to Tim Shipman as part of the Cambridge Literary Festival. If you want to come and hear him in person, do go to their website. He's the political editor of the Sunday Times. More importantly, he's the man that everybody tells their gossip to. He's written two eye-opening books about what really went on in the Brexit campaign and the general election campaign too. He'll be spilling the beans with us. Do join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Well, why don't you just tell me what we had for breakfast because we don't know what Tuesday's menu comprises of. <laughs> Tuesday's taco Tuesday. taco Tuesday, cornflake Tuesday. Tuesday is nothing in my life. doesn't mean anything. It's just Tuesday. When, I have breakfast Wednesdays. on Thameslink at 6.15. The 6.15 train. Thameslink That's Tuesday. the most miserable <laughs> sentence anyone <laughs> That's not bad compared to mine. Um... It was one of those barely holding it together mornings. Um, I had half a cup of coffee and a couple of spoonfuls of uh, oats. <laughs> That's worse. And I was already late. That's worse than the Thames um, thing, I think. Just remind us... Uh, what we're talking about. Yeah. So, the politics podcast goes out. <laughs> this is David, Helen, and Catherine. You're here to represent <laughs> realist leftism. Okay. Just... Yeah.